I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Lynn Twist. For over 40 years, Lynn has been recognized as a global visionary committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, empowering the status of women and girls, supporting social justice, and environmental sustainability. The scope of Lynn's work ranges from working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta to working with refugees in camps in Ethiopia and the threatened rainforests of the Amazon, as well as guiding the philanthropy of some of the world's wealthiest families and working directly with women who won the Nobel Peace Prize. I first heard about Lynn through her first book, The Soul of Money, and uh, her newest book, Living a Committed Life, which I'm so excited for everyone to read. So welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you so much, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. So to kick it off, Lynn, what does money mean to you? I know you have a lot to say about that in your book, The Soul of Money, um, but I'd love for you to just define it for our audience because I love the way that you articulated the meaning behind the word money. Well, it's very hard to unpack money from all the baggage that we've given this word, (laughs) This idea, this concept, this this uh, somewhat difficult part of everybody's life, um, and I say that even for people of enormous wealth, that there is so much anxiety and hope and disappointment and uh, corruption and um, embarrassment and shame and um, worry, et cetera, et cetera, around this thing called money. That it, it's it's kind of hijacked our lives. And what money actually is, is, a, is an agreement um, that is a, a kind of flow between human beings and part of the human community that we invented. We forget that we invented it. We, we think it was here almost before anything, but actually we invented it about 4,500 years ago for the purpose of facilitating the sharing of goods and resources with one another so everyone would be taken care of. 
And so it's designed uh, uh, as a current or a currency. That's why it's a currency. It's because of the current to flow through the world, uh, just like water. Uh, it's part of the commons. It's something we invented to uh, to move around so that everybody would have what they needed. And um, just like water, if it's moving, if it's uh, if it's clean and pure, it cleanses, it purifies, it makes things grow. It's wonderful when it's held or stuck or hoarded uh, water or money. Uh, but if you but just think about water, it's easier to talk about that. It becomes stagnant and and somewhat toxic to those who are holding on to it so desperately because it's not meant to be held on to. It's meant to be in use. It is a currency or a current. And in my view, it doesn't belong to all of us or uh, it doesn't belong to any of us. It belongs to all of us or none of us. It's something that we all invented to make life fair and equitable. And of course, uh, with all the financial instruments that have been invented and banking and interests and uh, commodifying everything, it's now hijacked the very nature of our lives and caused tremendous heartbreak, tremendous upset and damage, great sadness and and um, and concern. And uh, people kind of, you know, commit suicide over it. They kill for it. Uh, and it's destroying the very natural world on which we depend. So we've taken the ecosystem and put it inside of the economic system rather than realizing that the uh, economic system is a subset of our great and beautiful ecological uh, uh, bounty. So, you know, I, I know you asked me one simple question and I told you about 10 things, but money is really a conversation in many ways. Uh, and a current that flows through our lives. Beautiful. What, and so, Lynn, you use the word the soul of money, which I thought was a really interesting choice of word. <laughs> um, what does, like, why did you use the word soul in this book? And, like, what is what is the soul behind money? I love the analogies that you've, you've used. You know, money is like water, should be moving and flowing and beautiful. But, like, why did you use that word? And also, why did you want to write a book about this? Well, um, I'll answer the second question first. I, um, I've, all my life, I've been involved in global issues, um, and uh, my first real commitment as a, a as an adult was uh, to end world hunger with the Hunger Project, and so that's a tall order and a very bold commitment to have as a young woman with three kids, which is who I was at the time. Um, but that big, bold commitment um, gave me uh, a, a really powerful sort of like catalytic, uh, energetic way of living life. And um, I ended up being responsible for fundraising for the Hunger Project, this work to end world hunger. And when you're a fundraiser, um, you interact not just with philanthropists, or actually everybody's a philanthropist waiting to happen, but not just people with enormous wealth. You, you, you interact with, with this whole world of money and people's relationship with money. And so I worked in 53 countries, uh, training fundraisers and managing fundraising operations. And, you know, the, the culture around money tells you a lot about the uh, mindset of that particular culture or language or the people who live in that place. So for example, in Switzerland, uh, people are very discreet about money and never talk about it and are never showy about it or very rarely. You don't see big mansions, McMansions in in Switzerland or giant castles or uh, 
uh, you see a few castles from the old days, but nothing like that now. And um, uh, yet, if you walk just across the border to France, you see all kinds of display of money that uh, prestige and having a big chateau and wearing designer clothes is very important to the French, even though it's just, you know, a few miles across the border. Um, uh, or uh, you, you can use any uh, any country you want. And you see that money is a, a, a place that holds a lot of the cultural beliefs. And so um, I started to realize that I was learning so much about money, the kinds of things you couldn't learn in business school or as a financial planner. I was learning about people's emotional, psychological, spiritual, and ontological relationship with money as I trained fundraisers and raised money from people in, in even conditions of of post-war, like in Mozambique, we trained people to raise money from each other, even though the country was dirt poor, so that they would realize that they had resources right there in their country. It didn't all need to come from the outside. Um, so I've had these amazing opportunities to uh, look at the at the heart, and I'll say the soul of people's relationship with money whether they're living in uh, Ethiopia or Guinea-Bissau or post-war Liberia, or they're in India where uh, money is suddenly becoming so important to people when for years and years and years, it, uh, India was, was one of the places where we thought uh, poverty was really what was happening. And now there's these enormous um, fortunes being made in India or, um, or a place like the United States where the uh, the wealth gap is so gargantuan; it's literally criminal. It makes your heart break to look at the fact that there's a handful of people who own and uh, have access to more financial power than half of humanity. So the the way we've uh, aborted uh, dis the dysfunction around money, the hurts around money, the shame, the upsets, the guilt around money as a fundraiser and as a fundraising trainer and as a philanthropist myself, I saw the dark side, the light side, and the kind of gnarly uh, confusion that people have about money. So direct and up close and personal that I decided, well, I don't know if anybody has this kind of a, a, a view, but I should write a book about this. So that's why the book. And then your first part of your question, the soul of money. Why did I say that? Well, because Money has become a soulless part of our lives, and um, when we uh, when we do things with heart and soul at the center of them, we do them well. We do them with integrity. We do them with uh, uh, an expression of our our um, our affinity, uh, our responsibility for the world. When our soul and our heart and soul is involved in it, but when we separate our heart and soul from a topic it it becomes mechanical it can become harsh it become can become all about um accumulation and modification and and take without any give and i say that's what's happened to our relationship with money we do, we haven't brought our soul to it and we haven't brought it into our soul even though we invented it so the soul of money is a little bit of a trick title because money doesn't have a soul but we do and we can bring soul to money and we can bring money into the realm of our soul's longing. What do we want for the world? What do we really long for? Not for ourselves, but for life. Uh, because there are financial needs 
financial opportunities, financial resources that can be put in service of what we long for, for life, um, rather than what we need to uh, accumulate and extract. Um, and so I, I like to say we're, I want to be known for what I allocate, not what I accumulate um, this lifetime, both with things and with money. And, um, and so the soul of money title is really just to do what it did for you, make you curious, want to ask more, what does that mean? Why did you say that? Uh, your response was absolutely perfect, and it got people to buy that book, <laughs> which was a good idea too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, you know, it seems like how people spend money tells us about what they stand for, what their values are. And in the book, you also speak about um, how a person's values are are kind of known based on their bank account and what they spend their money on. Can you say more about this? Because I just love that point. Well, it's a one way to to pay attention to what you are prioritizing. You know, sometimes we don't realize uh, that if you look at what you're spending money on, not necessarily your budget or your plan, but what you actually spend money on, you'll see where your strengths and weaknesses are. If you look at your credit card bill and kind of really analyze it or your checkbook or whatever it is that you use for tracking, you'll see uh, what your priorities are, whether, whether you're mostly driven by fear or love, for example. So in the United States, our largest budget for our country by far it's not education. It's not health. It's not taking care of uh, of the, uh, the the warp and weave of our families. It's 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 in service of fear. It's weapons, massive, unconfrontably evil, horrendous weapons. It's the defense budget, and you know they use the nice word security, which makes it sound a little bit better, but actually, it's hundreds of billions of dollars compared to the education of our own children that's ridiculous and it shows where our 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 attention is our attention is on fear and holding on to what we have and this you know kind of horrendous belief in scarcity if we don't hold on tight we're going to lose everything uh so even though america yes is the United States, one of the most generous countries in the world in that way. It's also one of the most egregiously um, extractive countries in the world. We are the world arms dealer. We are the place where weapons are bought and sold. We are the purveyor of multi-billion dollar contracts, in some cases for both sides of of, of the same conflict. You know, when we were in Iraq and in Afghanistan, the weapons that were pointed at our soldiers were made in the United States and sold to that country by us for enormous sums of money, and then the guns were turned on our own people. So we have a um, a, a way of, of looking at life that goes through a lens of fear, which I could talk about a lens of scarcity. Um, but not just our country, that's an accurate reflection of the population. And if you look at your own... Um, you know, your spending patterns, you learn a lot about yourself. It's not just, oh, I should spend less on that. Oh my God, look at what I'm spending to try to look younger and thinner 
than I actually am. <laughs> you know, what does that say about how insecure I am and how I'm trying to buy my security uh, with products rather than taking care of who I am, loving who I am exactly the way I am, um, and, and, and expressing that in the world rather than amassing all kinds of tools and wardrobe things and, uh, and, and sort of um, commodities and uh, commercialism and products that enhance. So I'm not against all that. Of course, I do it myself. But I'm just saying it's so out of control now and so out of proportion. And I particularly point to the defense budget uh, compared to the health budget or the education budget. What is that about that we can't really focus these financial resources that we have on taking care of our own uh, children and our own health and well-being that we can't afford that because we're spending so much time uh, building weapons for ourselves and the rest of the world to kill, to destroy, to maim, uh, to take over, to dominate. So that's that's a example in answer to your question that it's very very revealing and sometimes quite shocking uh, to look at the uh, the what's so in your own life that way. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very interesting experience when I took a look at my own bank account many years ago when I read um, your your book for the first time. And um, it just, it really puts a lot of things into perspective and, um, you know, allows you to kind of see where you pay attention, what you pay attention to and where your awareness is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that. So we talked a little bit about scarcity and um, sufficiency and in the, in the soul of money, you also talk about how scarcity um, is oftentimes an unconscious and unexamined belief. Can you say a little bit mm-hmm. more about that? Yes. Well, I, I refer to our culture as something that pr- proliferates and actually almost preaches uh, a an, what I'm calling a toxic myth or three toxic myths that keep us uh, wanting what we don't have and being in some sort of um, frantic, uh, quest to accumulate. And, um, you know, I'm, I worked in, in, on hunger and poverty issues myself very uh, deeply for many years. So I know that there are real people in dire situations that do not have what they need. They don't have enough water. They don't have enough job opportunities. They don't have enough childcare. They don't have enough, uh, uh, you know, Health and well-being. I know very deeply and intimately about that. So I'm not talking about the reality uh, where people don't have enough. I'm talking about the affluent uh, nations of the world, and probably a lot of us who are in this um, podcast who have we do have what we need. I mean, we have what we need, and we're craving more of everything. And we're, um, you know, kind of selling our soul to the devil to get more of everything. Um, and I call this behavior an accurate reflection of a mindset, which I call an unconscious, unexamined mindset, or the unconscious, unexamined mindset of scarcity. And scarcity is the belief that there's not enough to go around and someone somewhere is always going to be left out. And your job is to make sure it's not you and yours, whoever you consider that to be. So the first toxic myth in the three toxic myths of scarcity, number one, the first toxic myth is there's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. 
There's not enough love. There's not enough sex. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in the night. I didn't get enough sleep. I didn't get enough time with my kids. I didn't have time to get this done. There's not enough weekends. There's not enough week. There's not enough this. There's not enough that. There's not enough this. There's not enough that. And the there's not enough mythology. And I'm saying it's a very, very uh, harmful and untrue conversation. Has a second half that says there's not enough to go around and someone somewhere is always going to be left out. And that unconscious, unexamined belief immediately creates an us and a them. There's not enough to go around and somewhere somebody's always going to be left out. And I got to make sure it's not me or mine, whoever me or mine are, whether it's your tribe, your country, your language group, your ethnic group, your family, your club. You know, it's, it's like a, 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 that which divides us so deeply that we're all about our separate selves rather than the common good. And that's the first toxic myth, the, the myth, I call it the myth of scarcity and scarcity thinking. And even billionaires, I can report directly, think they need more money. And that's ridiculous. And even they know that. But they're living in a mindset where it's absolutely almost like obsessive that they have to have more. And so um, the second toxic myth is, I'll lead right to that, more is better. So first is there's not enough. Second toxic myth is more is better. More of anything is better. Even if you have a 40,000 square foot house, you build a guest house. And then the guest house only has two rooms. So you build an addition to the guest house. And then, you know, you have uh, your house on the lake and you have one boat, but you really need a boat for the guest house. But then you've got a big sailboat. So you need a little boat to get out to your sailboat. And then, of course, you need a bigger boat because you actually now um, can't go everywhere in your boat. You need a plane. Uh, and then if the plane's not quite big enough for all the friends you want to take, then you get a bigger plane. I mean, it even I'm 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 kind of telling a tale on very, very, very wealthy people. Uh, but it's also true of you and me. We need another pair of black pants because they look us make it look a little bit thinner, or another pair of blue jeans that we just saw in the window that might make us a little bit more attractive. We already have six pairs of jeans or nine pairs of pants or twenty-six pairs of shoes, but we think we need more. So, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of pointing to women, but it's true of men too. So we are, um, we are obsessed with what I call more is better. And the more is better is an unconscious, unexamined mindset that has us take way, 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 way more than we need for ourselves, for our families. And from this earth, you could say it's the source, that mindset, more is better, no matter what, with no end in sight is the mindset of a capitalist uh, commodify everything in sight system uh, and the source of a uh, huge, almost almost unconfrontable and certainly unprecedented climate crisis. Um, and then the third toxic myth is that's just the way that it is. And I say it that way because that's just the way that it is. Holds the whole thing in place. So we don't question it. We just try as hard as we can to play the game. There's not enough go around, accumulate as much as you can, and more is always going to be better. And so we end up with a world that's a mess. And I say the three toxic myths of scarcity that keep us separate and competing and grabbing uh, are at the heart of so many of the world's ills. 
And so uh, that's that's the topic of scarcity. And then you asked about sufficiency. So I, I need to take a, uh, a, a pause here so that when you think about life, when you think about what's really there, when you think about how fortunate you really are, when you look at all that you have, when you look at your own talent and treasure, when you look at your own capacity to be of use, when you actually stand in the real honest-to-God truth about what is so, you realize not only you have enough, but then you realize you are enough. And in the mindset of scarcity, it doesn't go just from there's not enough, it's not enough, there's not enough, it's not enough, we're not having, we don't have enough. It, got, it, it starts to get into, into the psyche and you end up with an experience, I am, I am not enough. But in what I call the radical surprising truth of sufficiency, if you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what we're all scrambling and brainwashed to want more of, it frees up oceans of energy all tied up in that huge chase to turn and pay attention to what you already have. When you pay attention to what you already have, when you love what you already have, when you appreciate what you already have, what you make a difference with what you already have, and when you share what you already have, it expands before your very eyes. And that's what I call the principle of sufficiency. And the short version of that is what you appreciate, appreciates. What you appreciate, appreciates. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So it's, there's not enough, more is better. And that's just the way it is as like the three myths, three toxic myths. Um, I think everyone needs to hear that because it, it seems like in the U.S. Uh, we have like this desire for fame and material wealth and the acquisition of power and bigger houses, bigger cars. Um, yeah, it just feels like there's just a, a lot of, of desire to, to just accumulate. Um, so I think this is a very important reminder for everyone listening. And it's just easy to get caught up in that because so much of culture, I mean, all the memes that are around us are kind of um, constantly uh, telling us that we're not enough, <laughs> right? And social media and everywhere we look. Do you have a practice, Lynn, that you do? Obviously, the sufficiency practice of, um, you know, being grateful for what you do have. But for our listeners, especially um, folks who I think have grown up in the world of social media and comparison, I mean, do you have like a tool or some kind of way that you would um, encourage them to shift out of that mindset? Um, well, I wish I could just give everybody a pill and take one myself <laughs> because they have, the, the, the culture we live in fosters and actually foments and forces the scarcity thinking on us. Um, so it's very uh, challenging to just extract yourself from it, but you can, you can. So um, this, this principle of sufficiency, which I just said, if you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is really hard to do because we think we need it, whatever it is to let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, it does free up all that energy, that frantic energy of the chase, to really kind of rearrange your molecules and your perspective and pay attention to what you have. And when you pay attention to what you have and you share it, it expands. So we're all better off when we're standing in our own prosperity. 
And our own prosperity isn't about how much we have. It's our relationship with what we have and our eagerness and our, um, uh, I'll say, our openness to share it, to share it. Prosperity, you have that experience when you're sharing what you have. You don't have that prosperity when you're accumulating. You, you're, you're nervous, you're scared, you're, you're defensive. But when you're sharing, uh, you feel prosperous. And you don't have to have more than you need to share because we all have what we need. Um, so, uh, you know, you asked about a practice. I, I, you said it's obvious a gratitude practice, but I'm going to say the obvious because it's, it's powerful. I mean, really powerful to enter into a gratitude practice. I am not kidding. It will change your life. Brother David Stendel Ross, the great Benedictine monk, uh, teaches every day and embodies it with every cell of his body that um, gratitude will transform anything uh, that you're facing. Um, you know, I, I just came from New York where I was with um, some of the wonderful women who've won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I have a great privilege of working with them from time to time when I'm, when I'm lucky. And I just was with them for a retreat. And they had just returned from a delegation to the Ukraine uh, and they crossed the border and met with uh, women and children on both sides of the border, people who were trying to get out and people who were already out and had left in haste with all of their belongings behind them, grabbed their children and gotten out in time, and their husbands were back. They hadn't talked to them or seen them in months fighting the war. And I tell you that because um, one of the things that was so palpably inspiring about their stories in the documentary film footage that we saw was how grateful these Ukrainian women are for a tent in the park in Warsaw, Poland. How grateful the, uh, the people who got a spot on the train uh, car that's uh, built for 30 people and there's 375 of them on that and they're being so kind to the people they're squished up against for hours and hours. How grateful uh, the people of the Ukraine are for the love, uh, care, attention, and support of people from outside their country. Uh, they can feel the love. They can feel people sending pints of blood and sending contributions and um, praying for them. And their gratitude was just, was just awesome. And um, when the novellas brought that message to us, it makes you realize that no matter what's going on, you can be grateful for it. You can find gratitude in anything. And so the practice to get to your, your question is for me, um, most people go to bed at night with a, a, a feeling of kind of exhaustion and disappointment because all the things on their to-do list did not get checked off. And it's a whole bunch of it is dribbling over till the next day. And they go through in their mind, all the stuff they didn't get done and that they have to write down for the next day. And I do that myself. So this is not, you know, this is totally normal. But an amazing practice that really changes your life and is, it's like a sleep tonic is to review your accomplishments for the day. Like reach all the way back to the morning and list either in your mind's eye or in a journal all that you accomplished, all that you accomplished, uh, and be grateful 
that you did that and, you know, take some, uh, I wouldn't say pride, but some, some territory like that you, yes, I did that. I feel much, uh, respect for myself. Um, and then, uh, after the accomplishments, what you're grateful for. The comment that she made at lunch when we were having that meeting that really touched my soul. Or the fact that I woke up and I had that one of those hot showers and I really noticed what a gift it is to have clean and safe water when I heard about the fires in Northern California or the drought that's taking place in Oklahoma. Or I, I was grateful that my granddaughter spent just a couple minutes telling me what what's like for her in law school uh, over breakfast this morning, even though it was shorter than we wanted it. I got a real sense of how much she loves law school, etc. So you you review your accomplishments and then you look at three to five things you're grateful for and you write them down. And in my family, during the beginning of COVID, there's 11 of us. Um, spread out. My kids are grown and they have kids and grandkids. Um, every night we sent what we called gratitudes to the whole family. And we listed five things we were grateful for that day. And I learned so much. These, these emails that came from my grandkids and my son and his wife and my daughter and her beloved and my oldest son and his partner. I learned so much about what they care about. It was transformational for our family. And then, so that's one practice uh, at night to, to review your accomplishments, not your to-dos. And, um, and then, uh, then pick three to five things you're really grateful for. And it can be something like the color yellow. I saw it everywhere today and it was so bright and cheerful. It doesn't need to be some monumental thing. So then the second part of this or the other component or the bookend of it is to wake up knowing, being grateful for sleep. Not, oh my God, I didn't get enough sleep, but in gratitude for the sweet territory of sleep, even if it was just two hours. And then um, set your sights on what you're going to pay attention to in that day that's coming. So you're going to pay attention to, like you said, like I said earlier, the color water. Are you going to pay attention to uh, anytime you hear music coming from a car, coming from the radio, coming from somebody whistling while they're walking down the street, cut some, coming from a janitor who's got a little pocket radio in his pocket as he's sweeping, wherever you hear music, you're going to appreciate that or you'll be grateful for it. Or maybe you're going to be grateful for clouds or maybe you're going to be grateful for women. Maybe you're going to be grateful for the laughter of children. You know, you pick something that you're going to be grateful for that you're going to give your special attention to. And I'm not kidding. This is so like simple. It sounds like it couldn't possibly work, but it does. It lights up your life. Mm -hmm. It lights up your life. Yeah. So those are some, um, some practices. Yeah. Thank you so much for that reminder. And I, I really love that, um, of just having like a family, uh, time where we all talk about the things that we're grateful for, because it does tell you a lot about what a person is paying attention to and what, you know, what's important to them. Um, so I love that so much. Lynn, I want to talk a little bit about how your childhood shaped the way you saw the world. Um, I also, by the way, grew up in Chicago and uh, the same suburbs that you grew up in. And so it was really taken aback by your story and um, it moved me. But um, can you talk to us about uh, the experience, especially um, with your dad and, and sort of how you reacted to that and how it shaped the way that you saw the world? 
Um, yes, thank you for that question. Well, I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, north of Chicago, the first suburb to the north. Um, and we used to call it Heavenston because, you know, it was filled with trees and the public schools were excellent. And uh, we lived right in the lake and the weather in Chicago is not that good. But everything else about uh, the Midwest and, and the hardiness of people and the generosity of people, at least in my experience, is, is, is so solid and so trustworthy and so wonderful. And so I feel like I was very, very fortunate to grow up in Evanston. And I grew up in, I was a happy child. I'm the fourth of, third of a family of four. And my father was a, a big band leader, a musician. And he, in big band days, were, that was very, very happy music. It was post-World War II. And if you think about big band music, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's happy. It's upbeat. It's dance music. And he had what, what was called, very rightly so, a dance band. And so everywhere we went with my dad and his orchestra, uh, the Griff Williams Orchestra had 36 men. And um, uh, for a while, Dinah Shore was his girl singer and Rosemary Clooney, who they went on to become very, very famous people. Um, it was happy. And uh, we would travel by caravan with lots of cars and then there'd be trucks for the dogs and the instruments and the, the bandstands and all of our luggage. Uh, you know, a line of cars, and we'd go to these big state fairs or the big, beautiful hotels in the big cities uh, in the summertime when we could travel with my dad. And it was so much fun, and it was so happy, or those my memories are, that, uh, you know, the music and everybody dancing. There was, there, TV was so early, there wasn't much, so I'm kind of a lot older than you, but it was great to look back before television. Then when television came in, I remember we had an RCA Victor, a big giant thing with a little baby screen and everybody came over to see this thing. And we tuned in and, and you could see on the little baby screen, people from really far away. And it was so exciting. But I remember my dad saying, this is going to be really, really change, a big change for people because they're going to stay home and they're not going to go out and participate with each other. They're going to stay home and watch that thing. I don't know about this. And he was worried. And, um, and he was, you know, there was some wisdom in what he predicted. Uh, when I was 14, uh, or the day before my 14th birthday, we all went to bed one night after a really beautiful long weekend in our family. My grandmother lived with us, so it was uh, my mom and dad and my grandmother and then four kids. So there were seven of us. We all went to bed in our wonderful, big, beautiful house. And the next morning we all woke up except for my father. He didn't wake up. He had a heart attack in his sleep at age 50. And um, he wasn't sick. He was, you know, top form. He was this famous, wonderful, charismatic musician, the head of a wonderful dance band. And but he was dead in the morning. And it was a heart attack in his sleep. We, we, you know, we didn't. It wasn't something we didn't understand. But it was just so unexpected. And so my mom, who was just a wonderful woman. She was overwhelmed with the, the band, the press, you know, being a famous man. There was so much to handle. And so I remember I took refuge. I was just turned 14 with my Sunday school teacher because we went, we were Catholics, but we went to public school. And I loved my Sunday school teacher. Her name was Sister Benjamin. I just can see her right now. And she, I just went to her and she got me through my father's death. And how she got me through it was she was a nun. She prayed pretty much night and day. Um, she was kind. She was generous. She was loving. She was Her life was devoted to service. 
and I wanted to be just like her. So I started to, I now look back and say, it's not like I, I intended this. I, I was just sad and, and at a loss and shocked by the death of my, my father, who for me hung the moon. You know, he was the, he was the guy. Um, I, I began what I'll now call my interior life. And at that time, I, I, I would call it, I became religious. Uh, but actually, now if I look back and tell the truth about it, I became very spiritual. Because the church, all the rules of the church didn't really, they didn't float my boat. But the, the energy of worship, of, of prayer, of meditation, of contemplation, of knowing that there's an inner life, knowing that there's something larger than yourself that you can be the instrument of, whether that's God or the universe or the intentionality of creation or the natural world, I tuned into that. And um, so on the outside, I was a high school cheerleader and homecoming queen and popular girl and, you know, playing on all the teams and trying to be cool with my friends. I, I was, I did all the stuff that high school kids do to, to try to try to be cool and fit in or be someone that people, you know, will be friendly with. But really, my life was my interior life. And I would go on retreats. I prayed. I, I, I now look back and realize I meditated. I, I didn't know what to call it. Um, and and I, I, I look back now on that as a uh, source of so much of the depth that I uh, experience having access to. Um, and everybody has access to it, of course, uh, not just me, but I'm just saying that sometimes we block ourselves from that and we're all about the exterior or how we show up for everybody else. And we forget that there's this, what I call the source of our well-being is the well of being at the heart of our life. And I got very deeply in touch with the well of being, the infinite well of being that has become, and, and even then, although I couldn't have said this, the source of my life. And, um, uh, and I'll, I'll also name it spiritual, um, spiritual practice, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not, I'm not, not a Christian because I was raised as a Catholic, but I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a Catholic any longer, but I'm, but I'm a very spiritual being and I'm connected to that, that divine uh, spark that's in all of us. And I also am able to see it in others. I'm able to see it and help them mirror it back to them so that they can connect with it in, in, in case they become a little disconnected from it or or the just like with Tinkerbell when her light started to dim, that their light gets a little dim. I can help them uh, fire up again, kind of find that light. So it was a huge um, gift, my father's passing. He was he didn't suffer, um, but he died very young, and my mother suffered a great deal, and we did too. But he just left, and then we had to deal with what, what, the consequences of that. But what, um, what really allowed me to develop myself was uh, was the, that that tremendous loss, and often loss is the source of a breakthrough. Um, I say that every breakdown has the seeds. It's right in the breakdown, at the heart of the breakdown, are the seeds of a breakthrough that's way greater than the breakdown. But you have to look for them. 
You have to water those seeds. You have to have some trust and a deep um, commitment that they are there. And from that deep commitment that they are there, one can uh, come through a breakdown out the other side and even be grateful for it. Um, so uh, that's a snippet about my my childhood, or at least one way of looking at the way I was, the way I grew up and the way I was raised. And then my mother was a wonderful example of love and generosity and service. So uh, she modeled that every day till the end of her life. And, um, you know, the way one's mother lives, whether it's uh, positive or negative, has a huge impact on how you perceive the world. And my mother had a not only a kind heart, but she was just filled with love uh, for the world. So that those are a couple things about my childhood. Mm, thank you so much, Lynn. Wow. Oh, just reflecting on everything you said, it just very moving and touching. And, um, you know, you talk about that time when you were a kid and how you found, so her name is Sister Benjamin. Is that her, her name? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, Sister Benjamin, and how she kind of helped you move through this connection to something larger than yourself. And I think that's kind of something I've noticed um, now in both of your books, this connection to a higher purpose, a higher mission, which I think has been driving um, a lot of the work that you do. Um, first with the Hunger Project and then how you came to the Pachamama Alliance. So I'd love for you to talk about that um, for our audience. Well, I will say that um, the book, uh, the second book, I wrote The Soul of Money um, many years ago, and the book that I've just, um, in this time period, um, written and is really um, everything that I'm saying, I'll say. Uh, It's called Living a Committed Life finding freedom and fulfillment in a purpose larger than yourself. And um, the title kind of says it all. And then, you know, then there's a book, but I, but I, in the book, I tell story after story about my own life, but also about people that I admire, like Jane Goodall, like Van Jones, like some of my colleagues in the rainforest, uh, Desmond Tutu. uh, He's not in the rainforest. He's in heaven now, but of course, um, some of my uh, indigenous colleagues in the rainforest with Pachamama Light. So, living a committed life is a is a chronicle of of commitments and and my own and and others that are so compelling and so uh, I was going to say delicious, and that actually is the word <laughs> delicious because they're so exciting to work on or to manifest. And you know you can't maybe accomplish them even in your own lifetime, so you can never take credit for it, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing when you can't take credit for something <laughs> and you're not doing it for that reason. Then you become ever more selfless and ever more an instrument of what I'll call the divine or what wants to happen. And there's absolute freedom in that. It sounds like being enslaved to something or burdened by something, but but No. When you really commit yourself, it's when we don't commit ourselves, when we're trying to keep our options open, that we can't move. Well, we can't do that because then it closes off all these options. Well, we can't do that because it closes off all of those options. So a lot of people are trying to stay free by keeping their options open. I say, at least for my for my life, when you choose, you choose what is you commit yourself to something larger than your own life suddenly freedom and fulfillment is 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 palpably there for you you forget about all your little petty nuances and fears about yourself do i have the right thing on or did i say the right 
thing to that person or who should I be sitting next to at dinner or whether or not I, I, I you know, I, I look good or am I too tall or too short, or too fat or all the things that we think about. You don't have time for that. I mean, those things come up. Yes, they, they don't go away altogether, but they're so in the background because what you're about is your mission. What you're about is making something happen that wouldn't have happened perhaps without your participation. Maybe you're not the only person doing it, but, and so a purpose larger than your own life. And I really think that's important that it's larger than something you can ever really take credit for gives you that access to selflessness, to humility, not modesty, because modesty is the flip side of arrogance. It's just being trying not to be arrogant, but humility is real. It's honest. It's authentic. It's who we really are. We're humble to be alive. And this life is a gift. It is a gift. You've been given a gift. Your life. I've been given a gift. My life. And I've been given stuff to work with. Everybody has. And it's given to you so that you can give it. That's why we have it, in my view. We're blessed so that we can bless. And when we see life as a gift to be given, then there's freedom, there's fulfillment, there's joy, and you don't have to think much about whether to do this or whether to do that. Life starts to use you, and you become the instrument of something greater than yourself. So um, that's the book, Living a Committed Life. I love that so much, Lynn. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, especially folks who are younger, um, the other kind of like larger question is like, well, what, how do I find my purpose and mission? You know, how do I investigate that and, and commit to something larger than myself? Cause I completely agree with you. I think that unless you have a larger mission, I think that you can get kind of like sucked into materialism and, um, you know, and kind of comparisons and kind of forget focus. So how would you, uh, coach people or talk to people, um, who don't know what their mission and purpose is? Um, well, I would say that people who, who don't see what their mission and purpose is are not, um, connected to, uh, they're too, uh, there's too much noise for them because everyone, if you're quiet, if you're still, if you go what I'm calling into your interior, it's there, it's, it's there. It's often, there's too many, um, distractions. Uh, when you can't find it, but when you really ask, how can I be helpful? Uh, Ramdas wrote the, the beautiful book, How Can I Serve? If you're asking that question, you will get the answer. And it will be something that touches your heart and you'll be close to tears and you will suddenly feel your life is worth living. And you can live the most meaningful life that you've ever imagined you could live. And you know, we have so many huge, epic, epic problems and challenges in the world today that we have, and we have a, a, we're living in a time when the choices we make impact the future of life for the next 1,000 years. So every decision we make is important. And that you could think of that as a little bit of a burden, but no, that ennobles your life. That gives you the opportunity to live the most meaningful life all of us that are alive in this time in history, we get to live the most meaningful lives anyone has ever lived in history. So stay quiet, be reflective, meditate, cut the noise, and and listen deeply and ask, and it will start showing up for you. I mean, it's it's 
It's the heroes and heroines you admire. It's it's how you were on the playground when you were a child. Were you the person who protected the 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 people from the bully? Uh, then you're probably committed to some level of justice. Are you the person who always wanted to make music or art available to others? Then you're committed to beauty. You know, I'm talking about big commitments that aren't something you can check off, but give your life direction, meaning, and a ex- extraordinary opportunity to express yourself so it's there uh and uh and ask and then listen Mm, beautiful thank you lynn and i know we're coming to time Uh, i'm so enjoying this conversation um we have so many more questions but i I definitely want to respect your time and so just to wrap it up um what sort of things have surprised you the most on this journey um well i'll just say I have this, I put this in living a committed life, how fun it is <laughs> to, to devote yourself, your whole life to something huge, like ending world hunger, saving the Amazon rainforest. These are two other things that I'm up to and uh, empowering women and girls and stopping uh, violence against, uh, against each other. I mean, it's fun. It's inspiring. It's good, hard work, but good, hard work feels good when you're doing it, because you know it's making a difference. It's not just hard work, it's good hard work. And you meet the best people on the planet, and you are so um, served and supported in your relationships. You're not competing with them, you're collaborating with them. And that's fun. It's fun to make a difference with your life. It's fun to live a life of meaning. It's fun and joyful, fulfilling and delicious. Uh, to make a difference with your life. So I don't know if that was a surprise, but it's what answer came when you asked that question. Mm, Wonderful. And where can people find you? What are um, some of the resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, how to purchase your latest book, uh, Living a Committed Life? And also what's kind of your main kind of takeaway? What do you want to tell our listeners? Well, Living a Committed Life is available online on all the online long bookstores, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all of them, Booklist and and Porchlight, all of them, and hopefully in bookstores uh, and uh, and order it if you can't get it. Uh, Soul of Money also, same same deal. So those two books, I think um, I recommend them. Obviously, I wrote them, so but <laughs> buy them and read them. I think they make a difference. And then uh, the website, soulofmoney.org, S-O-U-L-O-F-M-O-N-E-Y.org. We have lots of courses, uh, courses for women and men, courses about money and scarcity and and sufficiency, uh, courses about the Sophia century, which I think is this century, the century of divine feminine wisdom coming through. Um, And then pachamama.org is uh, an organization I co-founded with my husband, Bill and John Perkins. And uh, we work in the Amazon rainforest, the sacred headwaters, with 30 indigenous uh, nations to preserve the sacred headwaters of the Amazon. And then we do um, educational programs around the world, pachamama.org, P-A-C-H-A-M-A-N-A.org. And then the Nobel Women's Initiative um, is, a, is, a, is something that I'm very engaged in, Nobel Women's Initiative.org, sorry. Uh, uh, work with women and girls, stopping violence against women and girls, and then The Hunger Project, thehungerproject.org. Those are all the, uh, the, the big things that I 
love to point people towards. So thank you for asking that question. Oh, thank you so much, Lynn. You're such an inspiration. And I'm just so grateful that we've had you um, for as as long as we've had you on the show. And um, for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about how to live a committed life with Lynn Twist. And you can tune into Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.